This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford Beati Immaculati Part 1, 4 So began those nine years of uninterrupted tranquility. They were characterized by an extraordinary want of any communicativeness on the part of the Ashburnhams, to which we, on our part, replied by leaving out quite as extraordinarily, and nearly as completely, the personal note. Indeed, you may take it that what characterized our relationship was an atmosphere of taking everything for granted. The given proposition was that we were all good people. We took it for granted that we all liked beef underdone, but not too underdone, that both men preferred a good liqueur brandy after lunch, that both women drank a very light Rhine wine qualified with fashion water, that sort of thing. It was also taken for granted that we were both sufficiently well-off to afford anything that we could reasonably want in the way of amusements fitting to our station, that we could take motor-cars and carriages by the day, that we could give each other dinners and dine our friends, and we could indulge, if we liked, in economy. Thus Florence was in the habit of having the daily telegraph sent to her every day from London. She was always an Anglomaniac, was Florence. The Paris edition of the New York Herald was always good enough for me. But then we discovered that the Ashburnham's copy of the London paper followed them from England. Leonora and Florence decided between them to suppress one subscription one year and the other the next. Similarly, it was the habit of the Grand Duke of Nassau-Schwerin, who came yearly to the baths, to dine once with about eighteen families of regular Kerr guests. In return, he would give a dinner of all the eighteen at once. And since these dinners were rather expensive, you had to take the Grand Duke and a good many of his suite and any members of the diplomatic bodies that might be there, Florence and Leonora, putting their heads together, didn't see why we shouldn't give the Grand Duke his dinner together. And so we did. I don't suppose the Serenity minded that economy or even noticed it. At any rate... Our joint dinner to the royal personage gradually assumed the aspect of a yearly function. Indeed, it grew larger and larger until it became a sort of closing function for the season, at any rate as far as we were concerned. I don't in the least mean to say that we were the sort of persons who aspired to mix with royalty. We didn't. We hadn't any claims. We were just good people. But the Grand Duke was a pleasant, affable sort of royalty, like the late King Edward Seventh and it was pleasant to hear him talk about the races, and very occasionally, as a bonboche, about his nephew, the emperor, or to have him pause for a moment in his walk to ask after the progress of our cures, or to be benignantly interested in the amount of money we had put on Le Lawful's hunter for the Frankfurt Welter Stakes. But, upon my word, I don't know how we put in our time. How does one put in one's time? How is it possible to achieve nine years and have nothing whatever to show for it? Nothing whatever, you understand. Not so much as a bone penholder carved to resemble a chessman, and with a hole in the top through which you could see four views of Nauheim. And as for experience, as for knowledge of one's fellow beings, nothing either. 
Upon my word, I couldn't tell you offhand whether the lady who sold the so expensive violets at the bottom of the road that leads to the station was cheating on me or no. I can't say whether the porter who carried our traps across the station at Leghorn was a thief or no, when he said that the regular tariff was a lira a parcel. The instances of honesty that one comes across in this world are just as amazing as the instances of dishonesty. After forty-five years of mixing with one's kind, one ought to have acquired the habit of being able to know something about one's fellow beings. But one doesn't. I think the modern civilized habit, the modern English habit of taking every one for granted, is a good deal to blame for this. I have observed this matter long enough to know the queer, subtle thing that it is, to know how the faculty, for what it is worth, never lets you down. Mind, I'm not saying that this is not the most desirable type of life in the world, that it is not an almost unreasonably high standard. For it is really nauseating when you detest it to have to eat every day several slices of thin, tepid, pink India rubber, and it is disagreeable to have to drink brandy when you would prefer to be cheered up by warm, sweet Como, and it is nasty to have to take a cold bath in the morning when what you want is a really hot one at night. And it stirs a little of the faith of your fathers that is deep down within you to have it taken for granted that you are an Episcopalian, when really you are an old-fashioned Philadelphia Quaker. But these things have to be done. It is the cock that the whole of this society owes to Aesculapius. And the odd queer thing is that the whole collection of rules applies to anybody, to the anybodies that you meet in hotels, in railway trains, to a less degree, perhaps, in steamers, but even in the end upon steamers. You meet a man or a woman, and from tiny and intimate sounds, from the slightest of movements, you know at once whether you are concerned with good people or with those who won't do. You know, this is to say, whether they will go rigidly through the whole program, from the underdone beef to the Anglicanism. It won't matter whether they be short or tall, whether the voice squeak like a marionette or rumble like a town bull's. It won't matter whether they are Germans, Austrians, French, Spanish, or even Brazilians. They will be the Germans or Brazilians who take a cold bath every morning and who move, roughly speaking, in diplomatic circles. But the inconvenient—well, hang it all, I will say it—the damnable nuisance of the whole thing is— that with all the taking for granted, you never really get an inch deeper than the things I have catalogued. I can give you a rather extraordinary instance of this. I can't remember whether it was in our first year, the first year of us four at Nauheim, because, of course, it would have been the fourth year of Florence and myself, but it must have been in the first of the second year. And that gives the measure at once of the extraordinariness of our discussion and of the swiftness with which intimacy had grown up between us. On the one hand, we seemed to start out on the expedition so naturally and with so little preparation that it was as if we must have made many such excursions before, and our intimacy seemed so deep. Yet the place to which we went was obviously one to which Florence, at least, would have wanted to take us quite early, so that you would almost think we should have gone there together at the beginning of our intimacy. Florence was singularly expert as a guide to archaeological expeditions, and there was nothing she liked so much as taking people round ruins and showing you the window from which one looked down upon the murder of someone else. She only did it once, but she did it quite magnificently. She could find her way with the sole help of a Baedeker, 
as easily about any old monument as she could about any American city, where the blocks are all square and the streets are all numbered, so that you can go perfectly easily from 24th to 30th. Now it happens that fifty minutes away from Nauheim, by a good train, is the ancient city of M. Upon a great pinnacle of basalt, girt with a triple road running sideways up its shoulder like a scarf, and at the top there is a castle, not a square castle like Windsor, but a castle all slate gables and high peaks with gilt weathercocks flashing bravely, the castle of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. It has the disadvantage of being in Prussia, and it is always disagreeable to go into that country. But it is very old, and there are many double-spired churches, and it stands up like a pyramid out of the green valley of the Lahn. I don't suppose the Ashburnhams wanted especially to go there, and I didn't especially want to go there myself. But, you understand, there was no objection. It was part of the cure to make an excursion three or four times a week, so that we were all quite unanimous in being grateful to Florence for providing the motive power. Florence, of course, had a motive of her own. She was at the time engaged in educating Captain Ashburnham. Oh, of course, quite pour le bon motif. She used to say to Leonora, I simply can't understand how you can let him live by your side and be so ignorant. Leonora herself always struck me as being remarkably well-educated. At any rate, she knew beforehand all that Florence had to tell her. Perhaps she got it up out of the Baedeker before Florence was up in the morning. I don't mean to say that you would ever have known that Leonora knew anything. But if Florence started to tell us how Ludwig the Courageous wanted to have three wives at once, in which he differed from Henry the Eighth, who wanted them one after the other, and this caused a good deal of trouble, if Florence started to tell us this, Leonora would just nod her head in a way that quite pleasantly rattled my poor wife. She used to exclaim, Well, if you knew it, why haven't you told it all already to Captain Ashburnham? I'm sure he finds it interesting. And Leonora would look reflectively at her husband and say, I have an idea that it might injure his hand. The hand, you know, used in connection with horses' mouths. And poor Ashburnham would blush and mutter and would say, That's all right. Don't you bother about me. I fancy his wife's irony did quite alarm poor Teddy, because one evening he asked me seriously in the smoking-room if I thought that having too much in one's head would really interfere with one's quickness in polo. It struck him, he said, that brainy johnnies generally were rather muffs when they got on to four legs. I reassured him as best I could. I told him that he wasn't likely to be taken in enough to upset his balance. At that time, the captain was quite evidently enjoying being educated by Florence. He used to do it about three or four times a week under the approving eyes of Leonora and myself. It wasn't, you understand, systematic. It came in bursts. It was Florence clearing up one of the dark places of the earth, leaving the world a little lighter than she had found it. She would tell him the story of Hamlet, explain the form of a symphony, humming the first and second subjects to him, and so on. She would explain to him the difference between Arminians and Erastians, or she would give him a short lecture on the early history of the United States. And it was done in a way well calculated to arrest a young attention. Did you ever read Mrs. Markham? Well, it was like that. But our excursion to M was a much larger and much more full-dress affair. You see, in the archives of the Schloss in that city, there was a document which Florence thought would finally give her the chance to educate the whole lot of us altogether. 
It really worried poor Florence that she couldn't, in matters of culture, ever get the better of Leonora. I don't know what Leonora knew, or what she didn't know, but certainly she was always there whenever Florence brought out any information. And she gave, somehow, the impression of really knowing what poor Florence gave the impression of having only picked up. I can't exactly define it. It was almost something physical. Have you ever seen a retriever dashing in play after a greyhound? You see the two running over a green field, almost side by side, and suddenly the retriever makes a friendly snap at the other, and the greyhound simply isn't there? You haven't observed it quicken its speed or strain a limb, but there it is, just two yards in front of the retriever's outstretched muzzle. So it was with Florence and Leonora in matters of culture. But on this occasion I knew that something was up. I found Florence some days before reading books like Rank's History of the Popes, Simmons' Renaissance, Motley's Rise of the Dutch Republic, and Luther's Table Talk. I must say that, until the astonishment came, I got nothing but pleasure out of the little expedition. I like catching the 240. I like the slow, smooth roll of the great big trains, and they are the best trains in the world. I like being drawn through the green country and looking at it through the clear glass of the great windows, though, of course, the country isn't really green. The sun shines, the earth is blood-red and purple and red and green and red, and the oxen in the plough-lands are bright varnished brown and black and blackish purple, and the peasants are dressed up in black and white of magpies, and there are great rocks of magpies, too. On the peasants' dresses in another field there are little mounds of hay that will be grey-green on the sunny side and purple in the shadows. The peasants' dresses are vermilion with emerald-green ribbons and purple skirts and white skirts and black velvet stomachers. Still, the impression is that you are drawn through brilliant green meadows that run away on each side to the dark purple fir woods, the basalt pinnacles, the immense forests, and there is meadowsweet at the edge of the streams, and cattle. Why, I remember on that afternoon I saw a brown cow hitch its horns under the stomach of a black-and-white animal, and the black-and-white one was thrown right into the middle of a narrow stream. I burst out laughing. But Florence was imparting information so hard, and Leonora was listening so intently that no one noticed me. As for me, I was pleased to be off duty. I was pleased to think that Florence for the moment was indubitably out of mischief because she was talking about Ludwig the Courageous. I think it was Ludwig the Courageous, but I'm not a historian. About Ludwig the Courageous of Hessen, who wanted to have three wives at once, and patronized Luther, something like that. I was so relieved to be off duty, because she couldn't possibly be doing anything to excite herself or set her poor heart aflutter, that the incident of the cow was a real joy to me. I chuckled over it from time to time for the whole rest of the day, because it does look very funny, you know, to see a black-and-white cow land on its back in the middle of a stream. It's just so exactly what one doesn't expect of a cow. I suppose I ought to have pitied the poor animal, but I just didn't. I was out for enjoyment, and I just enjoyed myself. It is so pleasant to be drawn along in front of the spectacular towns with the peaked castles and the many double spires. In the sunlight, gleams come from the city— gleams from the glass of windows, from the gilt signs of apothecaries, from the ensigns of the student corps high up in the mountains, from the helmets of the funny little soldiers moving their stiff little legs in white linen trousers. And it was pleasant to get out in the great big spectacular Prussian station, 
with the hammered bronze ornaments and the paintings of peasants and flowers and cows, and to hear Florence bargain energetically with the driver of an ancient droshka drawn by two lean horses. Of course, I spoke German much more correctly than Florence, though I never could rid myself of the accent of the Pennsylvania Dutch of my childhood. Anyhow, we were drawn in a sort of triumph, for five marks without any trinkgeld, right up to the castle, and we were taken through the museum and saw the firebacks, the old glass, the old swords and the antique contraptions, and we went up winding corkscrew staircases and through the Rittersaal, the great painted hall where the reformer and his friends met for the first time under the protection of the gentleman that had three wives at once— and formed an alliance with the gentleman that had six wives, one after the other. I'm not really interested in these facts, but they have a bearing on my story. And we went through chapels and music rooms, right up immensely high in the air to a large old chamber full of presses, with heavily shuttered windows all around. And Florence became positively electric. She told the tired, bored custodian what shutters to open, so that the bright sunlight streamed in palpable shafts into the dim old chamber. She explained that this was Luther's bedroom, and that just where the sunlight fell had stood his bed. As a matter of fact, I believe that she was wrong, and that Luther only stopped, as it were, for lunch in order to evade pursuit. But no doubt it would have been his bedroom if he could have been persuaded to stop the night. And then, in spite of the protest of the custodian, she threw open another shutter and came tripping back to a large glass case. And there, she exclaimed with an accent of gaiety, of triumph, and of audacity. She was pointing at a piece of paper, like the half-sheet of a letter with some faint pencil scrawls that might have been the jotting of the amounts we were spending during the day. And I was extremely happy at her gaiety and her triumph and her audacity. Captain Ashburnham had his hands upon the glass case. There it is. The protest. And then, as we all properly stage-managed our bewilderment, she continued, Don't you know that is why we were all called Protestants? That is the pencil draft of the protest they drew up. You can see the signatures of Martin Luther and Martin Bucer and Zwingli and Ludwig the Courageous. I may have gotten some of the names wrong, but I know that Luther and Bucer were there. And her animation continued, and I was glad. She was better, and she was out of mischief. She continued looking up into Captain Ashburnham's eyes. It's because of that piece of paper that you're honest, sober, industrious, provident, and clean-lived. If it weren't for that piece of paper, you'd be like the Irish, or the Italians, or the Poles, but particularly the Irish. And she laid one finger upon Captain Ashburnham's wrist. I was aware of something treacherous, something frightful, something evil in the day. And I can't define it, and I can't find a simile for it. It wasn't as if a snake had looked out of a hole. No, it was as if my heart had missed a beat. It was as if we were going to run and cry out, all four of us, in separate directions, averting our heads. In Ashburnham's face, I know there was absolute panic. I was horribly frightened. And then I discovered that the pain in my left wrist was caused by Leonora's clutching it. I can't stand this, she said with the most extraordinary passion. I must get out of this. I was horribly frightened. It came to me for a moment, though I hadn't time to think, that she must be a madly jealous woman. 
jealous of Florence and Captain Ashburnham, of all the people in the world, and it was a panic in which we fled. We went right down the winding stairs, across the immense Rittersaal, to a little terrace that overlooked the lawn, the broad valley, and the immense plain into which it opens out. "'Don't you see?' she said. "'Don't you see what's going on?' The panic again stopped my heart. I muttered, I stuttered. I don't know how I got the words out. "'No. What's the matter? Whatever's the matter?' She looked me straight in the eyes. And for a moment I had the feeling that those two blue disks were immense, were overwhelming, were like a wall of blue that shut me off from the rest of the world. I know it sounds absurd, but that is what it did feel like. Don't you see, she said, with a really horrible bitterness, with a really horrible lamentation in her voice, don't you see that that's the cause of the whole miserable affair, of the whole sorrow of the world, and of the eternal damnation of you and me and them? I don't remember how she went on. I was too frightened. I was too amazed. I think I was thinking of running to fetch assistance, a doctor, perhaps, or Captain Ashburnham. Or possibly she needed Florence's tender care, though, of course, it would have been very bad for Florence's heart. But I know that when I came out of it, she was saying... Oh, where are all the bright, happy, innocent beings in the world? Where's happiness? One reads of it in books. She ran her hand with a singular clawing motion upwards over her forehead. Her eyes were enormously distended. Her face was exactly that of a person looking into a pit of hell and seeing horrors there. And then suddenly she stopped. She was, most amazingly, just Mrs. Ashburnham again. Her face was perfectly clear, sharp and defined, her hair was glorious in its golden coils, her nostrils twitched with a sort of contempt. She appeared to look with an interest at a gypsy caravan that was coming over a little bridge far below us. "'Don't you know,' she said in her clear, hard voice, "'don't you know that I'm an Irish Catholic?' End of part one, four. Recording by Richard Grove.